Blog Talk Radio. I'm a truth terrorist. I'm a knowledge gangster. I'm a black history hitman. I'm a lie killer, urban gorilla. I gotta be a roughneck. Free the black panthers. FCBP. Stand for free the black panthers. If up the black police. That 13th Amendment. Trying to make a slave of me. You can lock my body, can't trap my mind, not to ever be free. Okay, free the Black Panthers, FCBP. Stand for free the Black Panthers. And fuck the black police. Feds infiltrated our movements for black leadership roles. But we still here, in the bill here. Up coin tail pro. Show. They got me started, lying hearted. I'm the new Mufasa. And I'm all about Umoja, first in Guzu Saba. Let's bring back the black families, we need our father. Single mama, son and daughter, that's root of the problem. Wise up, we wise up. Unity is so powerful. Black banks, black schools, black on black power moves. You tell a lie, you think this shit won't be televised. Black power, be scared guys, that be standing there like they paralyzed. Huh? We say fuck the system, cause we above the system. We keep ARs and pistols, shotguns, that's worth the crystal. But that's for self-defense, make sure we have no issues. Be sure to leave it at the door if you have it with you. This for them freedom fighters that lost their freedom. Until they freedom, we screaming carpe diem. This for the general. King Khalid Muhammad, we gon' make your day a holiday. I fuck me promise. Free the Black Panthers, FCBP. Stand for free the Black Panthers. And fuck the Black Police. That 13th Amendment, tryna make a slave of me. You can lock my body, can't trap my mind, not to ever be free. Okay, free the Black Panthers, FCBP. Stand for free the Black Panthers. And fuck the Black Police. Feds infiltrated our movements for black leadership roles, but we still here in the bill here. Up coin tail pro. RBG, 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 RBG. My sisters, my brothers, the council, the elders, cause that's really all I need. We suited, we booted, don't do it, you stupid, we head to the armory. Black women and goddess, regardless, my heart just don't fuck with misogyny, foolish that don't tolerate it. Melanated, so you gotta hate it. But rock up up another conversation. Trump finna get inaugurated, damn. Unify or die, nbpp.org. First and foremost, the new Black Panther Party, no, no other Black Panther Party, we are not violent. We are for self-defense and self-determination. And the most violent group in this country are the police. What is taking place by the police departments to black people across this country is ethnic cleansing and genocide. It has escalated since the day that Barack Obama was inaugurated in 2008. We have a, 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 a people who are only 13% of the population, yet we make up 80% of the prisons. We have 50% unemployment rate in the black community, and it's actually even more than that because they're not counting our people that are in the prisons. The 13th Amendment said you could not be made a slave or indigenous servant unless you commit a crime. The 14th Amendment forced our people to be subjects of this government. We never had any say in that. We need our own nation.
Well, that's okay. I'll put it But does it matter? I mean, I just wanted to ask. I mean, we we would like to know all your, you know. Oh, my business. Yeah, all your business. All your business. But I'll, I'll make sure it gets something. Okay. Uh, yeah. I'm just like, oh, my gosh, I forgot to add that. Okay, I'll make sure I put it on there. Do we need to get it on there? Okay. No, it was it was very
seconds. I mean, yeah, okay. Oh, I thought you were sitting to the No, you Oh, they had it up. You gonna go to this one now? Oh, they had a
Mildred Nett Carson. Bernard Oliphant. Present. Thomas Priester. Jesse Ray. Dwayne Richardson. Here. Eric Robinson. Here. Renita Waters. Cece Weston. Here. D. Williams. Here. M.V. Yehuda. Present. Keith Young. Here. D. Burris. Present. Tiffany Devella. Devella. Kiki Jazz-Bayon. Osandu Matias. We have a quorum. So we will um, I would like to um, let y'all know that um, Dr. Ward, I mean Dr. Mullins will not be here. Um, he had a loss in his family, and so um, that's why he's not here today. I would like to also say hi to the city manager back there in the back as well. So, um, has everyone had a chance to review the minutes?
So if y'all, you know, want to get a chance to review those surveys, you know, review the survey data, please do that. We try to be mindful and listen to everyone and incorporate your feedback. Um, okay, I'm actually going to, I'm going to hand it over to our ISA facilitators and spokespersons for their update, but I do also just want to remind you, I'm going to be facilitating and timekeeping this evening. So there's, we're going to hear from two ISA groups, and each group will have 15 minutes each. At the two-minute mark, when they have two minutes left, I'll hold up a two-minute sign. When their sign is up, I'll hold up the time is up sign. And I do encourage you all to jot down your questions and comments that you have um, and wait till the end so that we can do the discussion part. I also have some comment cards if you want to make sure you get your thoughts in the room but are not able to put them in the conversation but still want it to come back to us. We will definitely take your comments on these note cards as well. All right, so the first IFA um, work group we're going to hear from is education, and they're going to be presenting from the podium. Opportunities afforded to them, and that is what this group is working on 
to both remedy the harm, to course correct them, and to propose community-based solutions that will get at the multi-level, multi-layer reasons for these disparities. One, we've had people come to our IFA meetings and they share uh, their input uh, so far from proposals that we have. One key thing that was shared uh, at our last meeting was a mother with children was listening to a couple of our proposals and had given us some feedback that these are all great ideas, but essentially it's going to, uh, transportation is needed. Um, what if you work multiple jobs and you can't make these meetings? And what about these programs that you're looking to actually propose and start doing? Uh, there's going to be a lot of logistics that's going to be required for uh, both students and parents to attend. So that to me was very important. So our next steps are uh, we're looking to branch out to the other IFAs so that we can discuss one, how to make remedy the issues within each other, uh, and two, to see if uh, anything else comes about from what they've heard as far as ways that we need to kind of, I guess, revamp or rework uh, our proposals to make a better fit for community recommendations. Uh, we've heard accountability a lot uh, within our meetings, and so the next phase for us is to reach into the community so that we are accountable to see that we have our proposals, but we're looking at what about the community, what about the, 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 the actual communities that have been harmed and that continue to get harmed, what do they think? So Health and Wellness had an event uh, with RJC, the United Way. We're looking to plan another one of those events specifically for us so that we can get more feedback uh, from the community uh, so that we can better prep for some of our proposals. Uh, we're still looking at data, but we're talking about other ways uh, that we can get it through stories, Stevens Lee, USDA, ways that we can maybe get it if we're not going to be given uh, the data to within our proposals. Uh, so I thought those were three key initiatives that we're all working on right now. I have reached out to other IFAs and we do look to uh, start to come together and branch out to those for input. We tried to this month, it didn't really work out, but uh, hopefully next month we can get to most of our other IFAs so we can start to collaborate on some of our ideas. about transportation and centralizing resources repeatedly comes up in our terms that maybe folks don't necessarily want to go to different community centers, that the populations of black folks have moved, that perhaps it would be better suited if all of the resources and programming that we're seeking to create was actually in one place. That is not really up to us to decide as a group alone, but it is something that we repeatedly get feedback from, both in our meetings and outside of the space, this co-location of resources for folks rather than putting them Nestled in communities that folks aren't um, there. Um, accountability is repeatedly coming up of the, the need to hold the private sectors, like for our group, for instance, the school board is the governing body. There's limitations to what the government is able to dictate within those spaces. How do we actually hold 
that system accountable or private entities accountable to the map. Those things should be a co-created solution from this group based upon all of our um, recommendations and efforts, and that's something that we look forward to bringing to individual conversations to the citizens. And, and I just wanted to emphasize the uh, centralized uh, place where the community can speak and so that again as Dr. Lavender and Sonia uh, said that that has come up on more than one occasion. One interesting thing that occurred in one of our last meetings is that um, there was uh, of course there are community members who are able to come in and um, you know give their input but one of the community members wanted to look at as we were talking about um, focusing on compensation and uh, retention and recruiting of black teachers, really wanted to look at how we were going to determine that and um, pretty much who, who we're going to look at. Uh, how is that going to look? Who's going to be the person that determines who's going to be able to do or be a part of that? And so, um, and the uh, conversation came up, well, maybe those, we can do a DNA test, and so, <laughs> of course, um, I said, no, I, I don't think that's going to work. <laughs> because we can find that in, in DA, DNA testing, a lot of people will qualify and still would not allow the people who we're trying to reach uh, get the services or even be a part of the recruitment package. And so, um, it's been very interesting. and. Um, and as the Sunday said, we're trying to reach out to other IFAs so that we can collaborate better on how we come up with the reparation.
if you look at what parts of the county or the school systems in the county that you're looking at, you know, when the schools were integrated, they did not, when the zoning was done by the city, it did not take in all the city students that live in the city limits, but they sent them to the county schools. Okay? So how are you looking at what's happening with those kids that are in the county schools but live, but the families live in the, live in the city? Is there any look at that? Um, we, we've not looked at that specifically, um, but we know that that is an issue. And so I think the thing that we're doing is looking at the demographics of all, the, the, both of the school systems, and actually the charges at a private school. So we are trying to get those uh, demographics too so that we can see who's where, what the percentages look like. Uh, we also want to look at um, who's progressing in school, who's been suspended in those schools, and all of that stuff. Okay. We, we are looking at that. Okay. And Ms. Harrison, too, as well, uh, one thing that we are looking at, even though we haven't directly looked at that, we're looking at the teachers uh, for those students within those schools. So one of our recommendations is looking at essentially, you know, the kind of defect order kind of manipulated, uh, you know, how many students of color have to be within the school. We're looking at it as an idea of, well, if there's one for students, why not teachers? So essentially that way, even though they may be sporadic and spread out, that essentially there's enough teachers of color for those students that can help them impact as well. So we will, we thank you for that feedback. That is a good recommendation for us to take back. Uh, the question I have is, how will your IFA interact with the school board process now of recruiting and superintendent? Because remember, I think we've had five superintendents in the last five or six years. Thank you. Um, we're in direct communication with the Asheville City School Board, um, and they're, some of, they're on the listserv that we have, and some people are able to attend our meetings. What we're looking to do is actually um, have a co-meeting with Asheville City School Board and Bumpen County School Board to ensure that when we present our recommendations, we present them to each other at the same time. I think to just say something extra is there will have to be community action. There'll have to be some sort of support for this because again the entity that's responsible for enacting and saying what happens in schools are the school is the school board. And so we'll be looking to this group and other uh, community engagement groups to ensure that there's support and not only understanding the recommendations, uh, lobbying for those recommendations and um, further support, but we have had preliminary conversations and they are supportive and knowledgeable of what these recommendations may be. And we're in communication about the hiring of the superintendent. Um, I'm curious uh, around suspension and expulsions. Did you look at the data of uh, the SRO program and how that impacts especially African-American young males in particular? And that we picked up that tagline from, you know, from school to the prison pipeline. So I'm curious, <coughs> is, did you look at the SRO program and how it fits into discipline? We did so much, I mean, we haven't dissected that whole program. It is a part of our recommendation, but that is uh, part of the reason why that Stop the Harm is one of our top tiers for what we're looking to do. Uh, so uh, Mr. Gordon, who's not here yet, 
that, uh, and that is a part of our recommendation for inclusivity and also working with them so that it first addresses but stops that harm. It revamps the whole process through the
for the African-American community, where is it lacking? Um, and then Medicaid, Medicare um, reforms. And this, you'll see the little um, metrics where the first several of those, we had an exercise where the commissioners decided to put dots where they felt in these timelines what, the, what were the most critical. So the first several of those, we have yellow dots, um, where we're talking about short-term implementation. It would be great to see that in the shorter term. And then again, toward the end, when you're talking about reforms, which we know we're talking about policy initiatives, we may be talking about local and state and national policy, understanding that that's going to be a deeper dive, a heavy lift to impact some of those changes. So we've got this in all the categories. So when we look at the other seven categories of um, recommendations, we also have ranked them that way. And so we'll end up clustering all of those so that we're looking at the critical, the ones that the, the group has decided to prioritize first, and then to those that they take a much longer time to affect some change but are still worthy of us. You've got to start somewhere. So we're interested in doing that. One of the things that you'll also see um, and we are excited about this. Um, the event that took place on Saturday, and I'm excited that most of the commissioners were here, they're going to speak to some of this. But we were able to have the first IFA um, joint partnership with the Racial Justice Coalition, as well as the um, Center for Participatory um, Change, and sponsored great food, child care, caucusing, um, people able to come together and talk about what we felt um, was an opportunity that the public wanted. We've had requests from different groups about can we work together, can we go out to the community and have folks weigh in on what health and wellness is doing. Hello everyone. Um, our meeting with uh, RJC was very informative. We were so glad to see so many people there. And we had youth there also, and they spoke, which was very good. Uh, I think one of the young ladies also spoke to us when, uh, when we had our meeting in February. And she talked about her experience in her school and what had happened to her. Uh, she was bullied, and then her parents had to uh, put her in another school. So this is, I think, is common in the school today. So this is an issue that we want to consider, you know, with, uh, with the way we are doing it, uh, doing things, and how can we help these young people better in school? Because they're there to learn, not to be bullied. One of the things that happened also, as the know, gentleman mentioned that uh, he was having a time getting a doctor in Asheville. He could go to his home and get a doctor, but he couldn't find one in Asheville. And I think that is so important that we all need a doctor. And we need them, especially when you have a crisis, that's the one thing you need, a doctor that you feel comfortable with, a doctor you can go to. So I think that's one of the things that we'll be looking at, what's happening in Asheville that you don't have your own private doctor. And it's not always due to the fire. Okay, thank you. Good evening, everyone. 
ways we can leverage city-county influence in different ways to work with these bigger systems. So maybe there's certain programs or contracts that city and county have with health systems or um, other entities with our IFAs and ways that we can work with that to um, incentivize certain behaviors that we want.
about social determinants of health and the healthy opportunity pilot with Medicaid transformation in North Carolina. But we also have a great gallery of supporters that are um, from organizations Healthcare for All. They come, we came on Saturday, they come generally on a regular basis to help talk about the events for people coming together all throughout the state around how we look at the expansion of Medicaid and Medicare to specifically reach out and provide services to those who need it and those who are uninsured or even underinsured. We have a great issue in North Carolina in general, but also in Baltimore County, with not just uninsured, but underinsured, and how do we make sure those individuals don't fall through the cracks. Different 
funding body. So that is one of the activities that we plan to do as a group is to say which body of money allows us to remain um, true to our intention of what we want to enact with this uh, recommendation, which group can we actually hold accountable, which group is actually beholden to us. So the federal government, I mean, they have budgets of money that come to be all the time, and so I think, just to your point, I can't say what is there or what isn't. Um, and I think about lottery systems, I don't know if you mean the charter school lotteries, I just will say that, is, is, that, is that what you mean? Um, no. The way that um, when the lottery was passed, like the no, when they pay money and buy lottery tickets, that's supposed to go to education. See, I'm gonna, I'm like the school lottery system. Got it. Yeah, we can definitely do that. I have answered your question, but I will certainly look that up. Okay. Thank you. Yes. About education. 30% of the lottery revenue comes from education. Thank you so much. That's the community. 30% goes to education. So I do have a question. I was looking at the key harms addressed uh, in your presentation, and it touched on segregation and desegregation of public schools, order of 1972 and 1991. Is that just data? Um, because that's not really when the schools were segregated. I don't call it desegregated. Um, and they were segregated all the way up until maybe the very early 60s. So I was wondering what that gap, because by 72, that was all gone. So I was trying to understand, because the most harm came in the 60s when they actually did the desegregation of the school system. Uh, I'm not a data person. I don't think I'm a person that I was there. I'm, I'm just speaking on, you know, what I remember, what I know from the 50s and 60s. But I think that's a, I don't know, a lesson as a public school's order that states that 1972 and 1991 was part of that desegregation process. That had already gone. We had already finished with the right of 69, all of that was over and we were already integrated at that time. So I guess that's kind of confusing to me. Yeah. Um, I'll say, I'm confused about, um, those are the actual defect order timelines that we're working from. Something, I mean, as you all know, we were charged with documenting the harm and then linking our recommendations to the harm, sort of create a delineation of recommendations. I'll say that the one of the, the schools of thought that I'm a part of is that from the recommendations, I'd rather choose the, the pin piece of harm that has the strongest amount of data and proof that shows the trajectory to, to bolster the recommendations that are ultimately proposed to the city. I fail to say that I'm not, this isn't the hill I'm sitting on regarding these orders or the harm, I'm sorry to say. Um, but, um, you know, could be said that the fact that the actual city schools was, were forced to desegregate because they did not do it in all deliberate speed is the central harm, that they had to do it so quickly because they did not follow the federal order is the site of or the start of the violence that ensued on black youth after. But that's just a conversation that we've been having as a group and we haven't really landed on when we're going to pinpoint it. Is it the fact that they didn't follow the federal legislation and then we're to do this twice, we're found to not be in compliance and then have to do it twice, and then each time the way they enacted the policy was haphazard 
and or not in consideration of what was best for black youth remains to be seen. I think it just really it depends on which recommendation ties best to that timing. But I'm, I really plan to revisit the date that you're saying so that we can find better data about it. There is lacking city and county data from those times that we're trying to piece together to actually be able to show what happened in the time period. I do kind of understand that the way you put that, and just to get the insight of with there was still redlining going on, so they were actually moving. If they had too many African Americans in one school, especially in the county, they would redline, just draw a line straight down the street, and say this side go here, and that was, and the other side, you know, <laughs> and the other side, you go here, because there were too many African Americans in this one school system. And so that was how they divided the line. So they separated families and communities. So I think it's a very hot topic that we could really delve in as far as housing, education, all of those things. I appreciate that. And I, that's a great point. I'll say we looked, we did look into, right? We did talk about uh, the housing, I mean, the desegregation order and what that would take to list. And I'm not going to say this perfectly, but I think I'm going to use an interpretation to say that at this point, this is, has to go to this federal, state or federal, so it would be deciding to say, are we going to choose the state or federal government to list this desegregation order, which if you look at current data, both districts are in compliance with, but it would be deciding to sue to list it without understanding truly the implications of what that would mean in practice to say that there is no more recommendations or responsibility for either of these entities to report on where black students are. Is what is being enacted now. So we've looked into that and certainly can hear greater community feedback. But I will say, if I may speak for this truth, that from that conversation, I don't know if that's the, the lawsuit we would take up with the state or federal government. That was instituted by James Ferguson. Uh, and then the city of Asheville paid a pivotal point. Uh, they had a, a, youth, a leadership, youth leadership council that desegregated the Asheville City Schools. Uh, and that was in 1969-70, I do believe. Mm -hmm. And it was done by a woman who I interviewed named Leslie Anderson, mm -hmm. who is a consultant in this city right now, uh, who was also uh, downtown development director for the city of Asheville and brought the city of Asheville back. She can uh, give you a lot of first-hand information on that.
you everybody for the listen uh, very specifically. A performance audit, unlike a financial audit, uh, is one that looks at tangible outcomes based on data. Uh, one of the things that we know uh, from performance audits is there have not been a lot of them around here. My experience has been with the inspectors generals of government. That is why it was so compelling for me. Uh, most people, uh, a lot of times in localities and municipalities, there's a lot of politics that go on and not a lot of tangible results. Uh, you will find uh, a lot of times in, in a business or environment that performance is key, especially uh, when dollars are concerned. It should be so also uh, in a governmental setting. Uh, one of the things that most government auditors who are performance experts look at is the uh, policies and programs and also uh, tangible outcomes, the impact, if you will. And that is what we've not had a lot of in this city. We have a lot of very good service providers, but one of the things you have to uh, keep in mind is that we have to separate the personal from the professional. And if, when you don't do that, that means that people who are uh, the most vulnerable people always get hurt when performance metrics are not uh, actually the goal that that, that uh, strive for. So what we would like to do is take a look at the the policies, the programs, and how how uh, strictly these things have been adhered to by service providers. Not only are we looking at the municipal government, we're also looking at the sub-recipients and uh, NGOs, the non-governmental organizations that are awarded contracts, uh, because that is not the business of governments oftentimes to go into the community and, and uh, render these services. So then it comes down to these awardees who are providing taxpayer funds. Um, that is uh, basically uh, what has been some of our goals throughout this, is to start delivering tangible results because we've had many programs over 30 years from CDBG funding to outright utilization of city and county funds, but the harm still perpetuates. And as a matter of fact, it has been exacerbated. And we've never been worse off as a people. I know I can speak for black people. I've never seen it this bad here before. So these programs, even though they're well intended, are not working. And with that, I'll see. Thank you. That was a mouthful. What I personally say that it was um, a to what we said. We had never gone through this before. So a lot of things that we did not know about what an artist would entail. And so with the help of uh, Christine and the city and the county, uh, we were able to get through this. Uh, I don't feel like it's as complicated and as complex as people may think it is. It is an audit. And it's things that we're asking when we start to review for someone to do the audit process. These are things that we're going to ask for. So as far as, two minutes? Speed talk. Okay. So, yes, yeah, start the speed talk. So, what our purpose was was to set up something that when we do have come to, to people that want to be part of this audit, things that the guidelines that we would have for them and what we would expect to see from them, but not limiting them to do it because we want them to go. We realize that if they're professionals in an audit, 
they're going to delve into all these other things, and they're going to come up with uh, things that we may not have seen. But we will also know what what might be missing pieces that we can work together with. But it will still be. I think I do believe that it's going to be a plus. I mean, I don't think that it's anything that's going to be harmful. I think that the city and the county have done what they needed to do. And they've given us this opportunity to open up the door for us to gain more than what we know. Uh, I can't speak for all the black people. I can only speak for myself. And I think that it's a pleasure for me to be in this space and time and to speak and to let you know that Asantu and I, we were like dead on it. And we were asking questions because we made, and Mr. Alfred, he came in when he, came, when he could get in. And, and Dee was on the road all the time, so most of the things that she missed and what we learned, she just wrote it in, or she was sending an email. But I think that if you look over the scope of work, and if you look at all the things, it's not that complicated. We have not delved into a lot of specifics, because that's not what we're going to do with an audit. That's not, this is only the first step for an interview to get ready for the audit review. American community. 
Uh, but there's going to be some, some have to be some tangible results shown from that because the data says that they, they, we have not been served. We have not been. So there needs to be a disruption in that process. And the only way to properly disrupt that uh, and hold accountability, folks accountable or organizations is to use data mm -hmm. and, and to use those contracts that I know that some of these organizations have been around 30 years or longer. And they perpetuate, they are funded in perpetuity. You can look at the CDBG funding list now for the city of Asheville, I believe, on their meeting tomorrow. And some of these organizations have been funded every year for over 20 years and targeting this community. So that needs to be some accountability for us. And that's what the audit is for. I don't have a question. I just wanted to say thank you. Oh, thank you. So just really quickly, um, just to uh, give you all sort of the next step. Now that the scope of work has been developed, and I really do want to commend this group for coming together and just taking this recommendation and really just leading by example in terms of implementing. So what does implementation look like? So I really do hope that that is an example of how to take all of the rest of our, our recommendations and just start to put the pieces together. So thank you all for doing that. So the next steps are going to be to put this scope of work in an actual request for proposal document and that will be published early spring 2023. We know that we want to move quickly on this because it was an immediate recommendation and this subgroup is also going to be a part of the evaluation committee in looking at um, the vendor who does come on to do the audit. So I wanted to let y'all know that it's moving along. Our emails are always open, our inboxes are open. So if you do have questions, I encourage you to just read it and then send your feedback to us promptly because we're moving quickly. So thank you. All right, we're going to move into our presentation. So um, I would like to introduce our presenter tonight, Ms. Priscilla Maria Robinson, who will be presenting. And while she gets set up, I would like to offer a five-minute break um, to get food. Well, let's take a five-minute break while she gets set up um, to present to us. And be set
So for example, if I uh, write down Robinson here, uh, you can see all the parcels that have Robinson name here. Not only the owners, but also the tenants here. Uh, the second important function is uh, the, the ability to see the past and the present. So if you see on the left, you, you see there are four different checkboxes. Uh, if I turn on everything, uh, you can see the yellow and pink layer, which is coming from the uh, Asheville website. This is a uh, city-owned property currently. And then if I uh, remove the checkbox, you can see the blue dots, which are uh, 1963 city directory, which is basically all the small businesses that were present in the past, in the 60s. Remove that, uh, you see there are clickable parcels. These are basically all the parcels that are acquired during the 60s and 70s. Removing that, uh, you can see the urban renewal map uh, during the 60s that was used as part of the planning. And then if I remove that, you see the current online map here. So by clicking on and off uh, for these different layers, you can see the past and present at the same time. The third important function is the ability to see the acquisition processes entirely. So if you look at the bottom of the website, there is a year. For now, it's 1964. And if I increase the year, you can see the color coding change, which means that uh, it shows basically uh, the process of acquisition processes. And then if you see on the right, uh, you know, at the same time, in that year, uh, you, can, you can see the number of number of parcels that are appraised or uh, decided or whether, you know, how many parcels were, uh, were done with the transfer of deed, right? So you can see all these kind of analytics by moving the year bar in the, at the bottom. And then finally, uh, at, the, at the parcel level, you can see all the necessary information about appraiser processes, you know, when appraiser was done, and when offer was made, when decision was, was made, and then when the transfer deed happened, right? And then also you can see the appraiser's names and owner's, uh, tenant's names, and also, you know, uh, other information, such as the photo, photos of the order scenes. And these are all coming from the UNCA uh, special collection documents. So this is a brief introduction of the map we have built. Uh, and based on that, I think uh, Ms. Robinson will provide some uh, uh, walkthrough of the map. Okay, so what I want to do now is to bring it right in this room. We have many um, Reparation Commission members who were, the families who were impacted by the implementation of urban renewal, and so, Dr. Lee, would you bring up Haynes? The last name Haynes, H-A-Y-N-E-S. Uh, could you say the name one more time? Haynes, H-A-Y-N-E-S. Right across from Brown's campus. He was able to relocate 
with lots of graphics and all the data and analyses and visualizations and also in a companion paper that goes with this. Um, some acknowledgments first. All of our data analyses use uh, content and data from Asheville. The uh, land acquisition files at UNC Asheville and, and the rest of the data is from the county. It's Buncombe County GIS, both parcel ownership and property cards, and Buncombe County Register of Deeds information. So before I get started, uh, a, a challenge I have to mention, the biggest challenge uh, has been connecting the pre and post urban renewal data. So I'm going to pick just one property quickly to, to illustrate why this is a huge challenge. If you look on the right at 10 Gilliam Place, that's between South French Broad and Blanton, just north of Pfeiffer. That's that blue kind of shoe-like uh, parcel. Um, that's the current uh, property. If you go back on the left, that, that, the study we did was, was in June 2022, last summer. If you go back to the left, you'll see June 1965. So uh, what you should notice here is that in 1965, there were eight properties that overlapped with 10 Gillian Place. I, I list the owners there, it's pictures. So four located on South Grove Street and four located on Blanton Street. And of course, neither uh, do South Grove Street nor Dewitt Street exist anymore. So, so that's one of the challenges of relating uh, the present from things that are now obscured very often or even invisible. How did we solve that? Well, our solution was to calculate, this, is, this, this slide is a little more technical, but it's kind of behind the scenes, to calculate percentages of parcel overlap. So the goal was to understand how current parcels were assembled. What we essentially did was a reverse engineering to map back to the past. And so if you look at the, the graph on the, the picture on the left, what we're essentially saying is that 10 Gillian Plagues was constructed with portions of those eight parcels. And we characterize the, the portions, 35% of 1517, and down on the right-hand side, 2% of 1617. Doing that, that kind of calculation, that's automated, for, for modern par current parcels in Asheville, allows us to tell kind of the origin story of all the current parcels and connect the past to the present. That's really been what's been missing. And now that we've been able to solve that, we can ask all kinds of research questions, such as the preliminary questions we're sharing with you tonight. So really quickly, the, the, what you learn by, by doing this kind of mapping is that 10 Gillian Place was repackaged over a six-year period from 68 to 75 um, using eight acquisition parcels at a uh, calculated purchase cost of $23,000. It was resold three years later in 78 for $5,400. And in the afterlife, in, in June 2022, that one property is valued by the county, so it's all, count, all county city data, uh, close to $350,000. So this is what we did. We essentially uh, did this kind of mapping intersection percentage overlap, not just for the yellow property data, 
but for all 224 current parcels, connecting them to the 930 acquisition parcels in our database. So let's, uh, let's tackle the questions now. Who was affected by urban renewal? Well, you saw that in Young's presentation. From our database, we can draw a list of all the former owners and renters. So this potentially speaks to the question of who was affected or who was harmed. We can identify individuals and families. B, how much did the city of Asheville pay for urban renewal properties? So we have lots of graphics, but here's an executive summary. The total acquisition parcel was a little over $6 million across all 930 acquisition parcels. The median acquisition parcel value was just a little over $5,000, meaning that half of the owners were offered more than 5000 half were offered less. But the important number is that 85% of all the acquisitions were below 10K. So it really shows you kind of the range uh, where properties were purchased. Um, D, which properties does the city still own? So in, in, to answer this question, we went back to one additional city uh, data set. This was something published June 3rd, 2021 by the city of Asheville. And they released a story map website showing all the city-owned properties that came from urban renewal. If we go to that website on the left, you see that there are 13 properties, based according to the city, on the south side that are still owned by the city. So we took th those are the orange and then one fuchsia uh, parcel on the left. So we took those 13 parcels, dropped them on our map, and we also use the 1963 Asheville uh, Historical City Directory or phone book. So what I'm going to show you uh, in the next minute or two, we're going to zoom into one of those 13 parcels, parcel number four on the right, the one that's uh, fuchsia colored. So that's zooming into parcel, city parcel number four, also known as Future Nasty Branch Greenway. As of June 2022, it appeared to be vacant. That's located along the Town Branch Greenway, bounded by South French Broad Avenue and Congress Street and Gaston Street, west and east, and Choctaw Street, Livingston, Livingston Street, north and south. As you know, it's, it's just north of the former Livingston Street School. If we take this parcel, this single city-owned parcel, and show the impact of urban renewal on that parcel, um, we had a much clearer um, idea of what happened. You look at the impact on businesses, there are at least, we know there are more, but there are at least 23 business, at least 23 businesses were erased. Yeah. These include grocery stores, churches, restaurants, beauty parlors, barber shops, etc. If you look at the impact of city parcel number four on the loss of homes, from our database, we identified 34 acquisition parcels. We showed the pictures of the homes, and there's some absolutely beautiful homes here. Uh, it's uh, pristine properties. So, so what can we conclude from that? Well, when we try to measure the impact of city-owned properties, uh, if you do that kind of overlap, not just for number four, but for all 13 of those city-owned parcels, you come up with 169 acquisition parcels that were affected. This represents 18% of the original pool of the 930 acquisition parcels. So it's really significant. 
and it puts things in a different perspective. If we go one step further and we look at uh, Housing Authority of City of Asheville, HACA owned properties, there's seven of them. Of course, you recognize Erskine, Livingston, Heights, Walton, Livingston Street, etc. If you take those seven parcels, they intersect or overlap with 147 formerly acquisitioned or acquisition parcels. That's an additional 16% of the original pool of 930 acquisition parcels. So if you combine those two effects of ACA-owned and city-owned properties, there's a 34% combined in urban renewal impact. This is just for 20 modern or current parcels. So those parcels were repackaged during urban renewal into these very, very large chunks, but they overlap with 316 properties. This represents over a third of the original pool of 930 acquisition parcels. So the group believes that this is really an indication of the depth of the legacy of urban renewal in Asheville. It's not a few parcels, it's a few modern parcels but over a third of the original pool that is still uh, owned, uh, lease controlled. Okay, I'm going to move a little faster here um, um, because we went a few minutes left. How much are those properties now worth? We did a systematic analysis and came up with about a 400% increase in the valuation of the, these current 224 parcels since urban renewal. This is after inflation adjustment. We used inflation adjustment calculators. And this is all based on Buncombe County's parcel ownership dashboard. That's a very conservative increase. Uh, we did a few studies for parts of the neighborhood where we looked at commercial valuations like Zillow, and the uh, percentage of increase in valuation is even higher, up to 1,000% in some areas. This indicates that urban renewal really deprived the Southside homeowners of a significant source of intergenerational wealth. Mm -hmm. And for the first time, we have data in members that can be audited and looked at and examined, and, and we can have other types of questions. E, uh, this, is, this was an interesting question. We were asked, when did the city start reselling these properties? So, so the process was repackaging all the acquisition properties into larger chunks, that's the 224, and the city and Hakka, primarily Hakka, uh, but also the city, resold repa these repackaged, reconfigured parcels. This was a surprising finding, not just in the 70s and 80s, but over a five-decade period. So while 86 of the repackaged parcels were resold immediately or very quickly in the 70s and 80s, there's another 14% that was offloaded in the 90s, 2000s, and 2010s. This is really worth looking at. And um, I'm going to finish with uh, another question or so. We call the, the first round beneficiaries of the reselling of these repackaged pro properties repurchasers. And I'll show you why that, that matters next. So before I do that, one more, one more research question. How much were these properties sold for? This was a very surprising finding. Uh, the repackaged parcels were resold at discounted prices. The median value of the resold parcels was less than a fifth of their acquisition value. This indicates that the majority of the repackaged parcels were first resold 
for, for a small fraction. As a matter of fact, 83% of the parcels were resold by HACA in the city below acquisition cost. And the total resale revenue was only $3 million as opposed to over $6 million for the acquisition. And this is, I think, our last, que our last question. Who was able to repurchase these properties? So we did an analysis of the first round, it's almost like the first stock uh, buyers, the first round of repurchasers, categorized them as follows. 46% of them were individuals, 40% of them were businesses, the city uh, shows up 7% of the time, Hackett 3% of the time, churches 3%, county 1%. Out of the 224 repackaged parcels, there were 152 unique repurchasers, which means you had serial buyers or people who bought many uh, properties. In the top 10 repurchasers, um, the top 10 repurchasers were responsible for buying almost a third of all 224 repackaged parcels. None of the top 10 repurchasers were individuals. They were real estate businesses, property management businesses, companies, etc. Only 14 individuals who lost their property in the south side, based on our database, were able to come back in the first round and repurchase a property. We saw one of them, I think Nance, fell in that category, her family, after losing their property. These 14 individuals represent 9% of the 152 unique repurchases. So what you see here is that uh, there wasn't much success for individuals to come back, at least in the first round. And I'm going to uh, conclude here and uh, pass, uh, pass the mic back to Priscilla uh, for her final words. I hope this information was useful. Mm -hmm. Very sat at this table, I remember you sharing this presentation with those two gentlemen with me. It probably wasn't in the form that it is in now, but I just wanted to say even then, uh, it was sobering, but the work that you're doing uh, lets us know that this work can be done. These numbers can come out. It's not hard to find. Average, everyday lay folk can find it, and uh, I'm just 
so happy that people like you are, are out there doing this when people aren't watching you, people aren't asking you to do it. And, and I just really appreciate it because it made my job a lot easier. Um, and just thank you. What you've done was hella dope. I really appreciate it, but it's also sobering. And if nobody has ever told you, we appreciate you, I appreciate you. So thank you. interested in coming back to our housing meeting and discussing some of these issues with us? Uh, I think that would be a great time for economic development and housing to have a joint meeting and as those things directly overlap and uh, um, the quantification of the loss together with, with um, the target maybe say for the future if, if, if we could link those two groups together yes. for that, it would save time for her and, and, and allow us to work together uh, with profound numbers. Ms. Robertson, uh, very much aware that you did Southside because it was personal to you. That was not the only community within the African-American community to be involved and to be torn up with urban renewal. Do you have plans to do any other communities? Uh, if I'm invited to do so. From my understanding, East End has, they have someone already looking at the style. Mm. So I would be more than happy to collaborate with them in other communities to kind of guide No one went hungry and no one was homeless. 
It was a community that stuck together. And, and I'm, I, you know, I venture to say, once we integrated in other communities where we were not wanted, it, you know, as I think D. Williams stated, it was a nightmare. Uh, Thomas McCall, if you look up his book, he, uh, he named it Them, and he talked about how moving into uh, a Caucasian community, and he would peep out at them, and he knew they were peep, uh, peeping out back at them. And then another book I would like to recommend is um, Dr. Mindy Fuller's book. Uh, she talks about how tearing up communities impacts the health, the mental status. I mean, she goes down the line. She, she doesn't just focus on housing. So that would be a good book to get and to read. And actually, it would be awesome if you could bring her here to speak or have her speak, uh, you know, uh, using as we use. She came here from years ago. Uh, when we first started this conversation, but I think it would really be worth you listening to her as a speaker. Well, we want, I want to thank you again for coming and presenting the Thanksgiving team. Like, that was awesome, and I'm super excited to have the project as well, because it is amazing, and thank you again. So we will now. I have one question. question. Oh, sorry. I think you said you had 14 copies of the cross. Mm -hmm. Can we as a commission get more copies? Because I'd like to have one of yours. Yeah. Yeah. How would that work? Can you repeat that? I'd like to have one. Okay. She got the 14 copies, but if anybody else wanted copies or extra copies, could we as a commission? Yes. Okay. Yes. Thank you. Okay. Um, okay, just to move on really quickly, just in the interest of time, um, I think we're only going to be able to do, I, I want to give you all an update on community engagement and communication, and then we'll hear from um, public comment. So, there's a flyer that's included in y'all's meeting packet. We also have extra copies of this flyer. We'll also make it available digitally. Really, we just wanted to um, show the commission and show the community that uh, we do want this to be an open process. And so this flyer really just answers some of the basic questions. What is reparations? What does it mean for Asheville and Buckham County? How can you get involved? So we wanted to just highlight this, and we'll send it out also virtually. It has information about the website. It has information about, you know, how you can sign up to learn more. Um, additionally, after this, I'm going to be sending out a link to commission members to um, sign up for community events if you would like to go and, you know, speak on behalf of the commission. Um, Buffalo County is helping us to organize almost, um, I don't want to call it a, a speakers bureau, but organize a system where we can share community events that are happening so that if you are available for those events, you can go and represent the commission. 
So what I'm going to do is send out a link after this meeting, and it'll be a sign-up. You'll have all the dates and the, the details of those events. Um, and then a flyer like this would be a tool that you can take with you um, so that if folks in the community have questions about what reparations is, y'all will be equipped to point them in the right direction. disenfranchised black people, including repealing the absentee voting 
provision for the municipal election specifically for Buncombe County two months before the referendum that created this government that we have today. Um, and I've done a ton of research around this and like I said, I can't really spill it all out in three minutes. And Thank, you. Thank you. Um,
And there's no guarantee that you'll start off with living in affordable housing for the first few, few years, and then because of the nature of the economy, the person owning the house is going to be, want to increase that price. So what is affordable about that? <laughs> so the issue is that as you continue in your efforts, and I encourage you to continue, because I'm getting ready to take my pen to work, and I'm going to present myself as some of the injustices of this situation of urban renewal, and even nowadays, as a test of I assure you, you will not embarrass me. And you won't make me ashamed. Thank God you. Speaks. Thank you. Thank you.